Last week I began a uh, series uh, that I entitled uh, The Biblical Worldview and Mindset. And I gave the introduction to that. Um, and I suggested that this was going to be important as we uh, come into an increasingly post Christian and post modern America. And so I explained those two concepts. If you weren't here, I'll explain them briefly, but you might want to listen to last week because there was a lot of information there, including scripture that I can't reread. A worldview is a perspective of reality that results from our language, culture, environment, and experience, which we internalize, and in doing so, it sets a filtering system over our senses that establishes exactly how we experience, interpret, perceive, and remember reality. Each culture has a broad basic worldview with several subsystems that we could almost call dialects. Uh, and in addition, because we are individual personalities, uh, we are not blank slates. And those of you, most of you are parents, and you know that there was a critter in there when they came out, you know. Uh, and that critter's been trying to establish its will all over the household, you know. Uh, that's, that's just what they do. Uh, they are not blank slates. Um, but that critter was then formed and shaped as they internalized the language and the culture in the context of the environment that they were in and their, um, their own experience. And that that creates uh, some variability also in this worldview perspective. Now, the worldview of God was lost in the Garden of Eden and in the emergence of the nations that resulted from Babel when God shifted the languages and shifted people into different environments. And we created nations and cultures and tribes and kindreds and all of that. Uh, then, what God did is he created a, a context for his worldview to be reintroduced into the world. And he did that by selecting a people through Abraham, a language, which is Hebrew, a land, which is the promised land, and a culture and religion, which is what the essence of Judaism is. And he created that so that they would be a light to the nations. And so the idea was that God would reintroduce his worldview in that context and in the scriptures that were given in that context so that it would be a, uh, an announcement to Israel, a sign to them, and they would be not only a covenant, but a sign to all the peoples of the world. And so it is through the scriptures in that context that the truth of God is expressed and experienced. Now the other thing I talked about was the mindset. Mindset is an attitude or a focus that maintains the direction and the intentionality of our life. The biblical mindset, as I said, is humility uh, and faith or trust that results in obedience. Uh, the mindset of the world is pride and self-direction that results in missing the mark or disobedience. And there is a possibility of being caught between these two, particularly if you're an American. Caught between the humility, faith, and obedience, and the pride and uh, self-direction, self-sufficiency, and uh, the missing the mark because we're chasing uh, after the wrong goals. James calls that double-mindedness. 
Welcome to the American church. The American church is a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. The American church is stuck between the biblical worldview and the worldview of the world. And we're stuck in that because the biblical worldview and the foundation of our worldview were merged together a very long time ago. So that in our culture, it's some of the biblical truth. And in the uh, context of our faith is some of the worldly stuff that's been syncretized inside of that. And that creates a problem. And so uh, I want to talk about that because James says that those who are double-minded, in James chapter 1 verse 8, they are unstable in all their ways. Because a person who's not quite sure of their direction uh, will redouble their efforts having lost sight of their perspective and way. And they may be making good time, but they're not going anywhere. I once brought my car into a, a dealer to have it repaired. And this guy was moving cars around and, and uh, bringing cars out and doing all this stuff. And I said, uh, uh, you're quite busy. He said, don't confuse motion with progress. Uh, we can be very busy uh, and not, not accomplishing anything. So our, uh, this, this is an important series. So I suggested that the worldview has to be taught and caught and reinforced inside the community. That is inside the household, in the family, and in the congregation. It is a shared thing. But the mindset is the responsibility and choice of the individual. You yourself individually must humble yourself. You yourself individually must trust God. You yourself must obey God. And then in that context, as groups of us individually have set that mindset, we then will teach our children and speak to one another the things that will instruct and reinforce the biblical worldview as, as we understand it. So that's what I talked about last week, and now you're caught up. This week I want to talk about the worldviews that have been historically found in uh, this culture. And, and I originally planned to just do a quick run-through of the eight worldviews that have historically been found in Western civilization. And then I realized that if I did that, uh, it would do you no good. So I'm going to talk about all eight of them to give you an idea. In fact, you will see them on the back of your bulletin. Uh, if you look at the back of the bulletin, I put a little chart. And in that chart, you'll see four lines, not the drawn lines, four lines of print. Uh, first one being Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian. The second one being pre-modern tradition. Third one being modern secular, that. You see that there? And then you see some lines drawn. Those lines are how they connect to each other in their development. And I'm going to take four messages to complete this. But I'm going to talk about the first ones, the Greco-Roman and the Judeo-Christian today. These are what I call the ancient worldviews that were merged together into the pre-modern tradition and then got remixed in the modern worldviews. There are three of those. And now are being challenged by what we call the post-modern worldviews. And there are two of them. So today what I'm really going to address is those first early foundational ones. Because if you don't know how something came to be, you will confuse your understanding of it. The historic perspective is not the only perspective, but it's the foundational perspective for all things. And if you don't know the history of something, 
then you are going to interpret it very differently and that's going to create problems for you. So, today I want to explain the ancient worldviews and uh, uh, I will explain next time how they merge together. But you will notice as I talk to them that you uh, you can identify with both of them. And that's because you're a product of their merging. Um, When these began, they were as opposite as those two doors. Judeo-Christianity coming this way, Greco-Roman going this way. And when they merged, that merging created the little bit country, a little bit rock and roll thing that I'm talking about. So, both the Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman worldviews were part of the ancient world. We talk about the ancient world up until around... 400, 500 uh, A.D. You know, that period before that is the ancient world. The last part of that is the classical world. Uh, That's that's what historians talk about. So, uh, I'm going to call the biblical worldview the Judeo-Christian worldview or perspective uh, because it was that of of Israel and those early Christians uh, who included the Gospels and the Epistles into this faith. Um, Many of them were Jewish, some of them were Gentile. Uh, And then the other part of that I'm going to call the Greco-Roman perspective because it started with the Greeks and then continued through the Romans. Uh, Ultimately, these things came together in the Roman Empire, and I'm going to talk about that at another time. But let me today try to talk about the Greco-Roman worldview and the Judeo-Christian worldview and how they developed and what they look like. I can't go into great detail, but I can give you enough to have a sense. If I asked you to to know the difference between chocolate and vanilla, you could do that because you've experienced that. And you know that people can swirl those together, and you know when there's more vanilla in the swirl and more chocolate in the swirl. It's more difficult with this because if you don't know the separate pieces... All you know is the swirl. Sometimes it's hard to tell those differences. Okay? So, I'm going to start with the Greco-Roman one because that's the the one that our culture is ultimately founded on. Our culture is not founded on the scriptures. The scriptures don't belong to Western civilization. They belong to an, an oriental past. And that oriental past ultimately comes out of Babylon, uh, Babel, the original Babel, through the Chaldean area, the Egyptian area, and what we call the Middle East or the Near East. Different than the Western culture, which came out of a different context, okay? So, let me start with that. The people of the Greco-Roman world were the Minoans, the Greeks, and the Romans. They... Their languages were Greek and Latin, Latin in the Roman Empire, Greek in the Hellenistic Empire, and their cultural texts, that is, the books that maintained their worldview, were the Homerian myths. Any of you read the Iliad or the Odyssey? Okay, It's not read as much as it used to be. If you saw the movie, O Brother, Where Art Thou? You got a version of it, right? Uh, the, 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 the Homerian myths were sung poems that that created a mindset and a worldview that gave people a perspective of reality. And that worldview uh, was later adapted and challenged by the Greek 
philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, uh, Socrates, that group. So what we have is we have a historical literary context, a canon, if you will, a, a Bible, if, if I can use that term, of the Greco-Roman world, which is the Greek myths and the Greek philosophers that were continued by the Romans. This was done in Greek and it was done in classical Greek and in Latin. Now, the geography for this culture is the area we call Greece and Italy, the area of the Mediterranean that is from Spain almost to Turkey. That general area is the area where this culture uh, thrived and tried to conquer the world, both under Alexander the Great and under the Caesars. Okay? Uh, that's the Greco-Roman origins. Now, what is Greco-Roman culture? Well, to put it in some basic ways, the Greeks and the Romans were very interested in health and in looks, beauty. Sound familiar? The Greek and Roman statues were the epitome of the perfect look. The architecture was the beauty of the architecture, symmetrical, uh, mathematically correct. All of that focus is not Judeo-Christian. It is Greco-Roman. They were interested in health and in beauty, so much so that if a child was born with a defect, it was simply set on the hill and allowed to die. Because they only cared about the beautiful, the healthy, and, and the excellent in terms of, of, of looks. They saw goodness, not in a moral capacity, but in the capacity of excelling. So the concept of excellence is a concept of the Greeks and the Romans. So you could be a complete scumbag. You could be the worst person in the world, but if you were a great hunter or you were a great wrestler, you were good. And we use that in our culture. He's good at that. And we use the word that. That comes from the Greeks and the Romans. That's not Judeo-Christian. The gods could be understood through circumstances. The gods were behind the scenes doing things. And when the gods got angry, things happened in the world. And when the gods were happy, things happened in the world. And if the gods were trying to get your attention, they would do something in the world. And if they were trying to communicate to you, they did it through circumstances. So if you've ever heard somebody say, I wonder what God is trying to teach me through these circumstances, that is a Greco-Roman. That is not Judeo-Christian. You say, wait a minute, I hear it at church all the time. That's the mix. We'll talk about that. It doesn't come from the scriptures. It comes from the Greco-Roman background. Now, the goal of life of the Greeks and the Romans was to have your name and your reputation survive your death. So seeking to be significant and seeking to be successful, seeking to be famous, to be influential, all of that is not Judeo-Christian, it's Greco-Roman. And it goes back to the time when God destroyed the earth from a flood because that's when the, mer the bloodlines merged, Seth and Cain, and it said when they merged, they got these men of renown, 
the great heroes, the mighty men. That is the, not God's way, but our way. That's Greco-Roman. Now, the individual in Greco-Roman notions is very important. Uh, the individual is important because they are significant and they will, they will do something that will impress the gods. So when you hear somebody say, I'm going to do great things for Jesus, great things for God, that's Greco-Roman. That's not Judeo-Christian. They're self-directed and their self-purpose. I'm going to do this. God bless it. Be pleased with it, God. That's Greco-Roman. That's not Judeo-Christian. And marriage is kind of an option. Because you actually have a better chance of being great if you're not married. And that comes out of the Greco-Roman world as well. The focus is on this life here and now. And as Paul says, the Greeks seek wisdom. This is where the philosophers came in. The philosophers came in and said, we're going to use reason and thought and speculation to figure out everything. And in doing that, we'll make a better world. And we'll be significant in that better world. You can almost hear the building of Babel in those words. So for the Greeks, philosophy went to extremes. You had the Stoics on one side that said, we won't touch, we won't taste, we won't smell, we won't do anything. And you had the Epicureans who said, we're going to eat it all, see it all, do it all. Get that sense in America, we're either all or nothing. That's Greco-Roman. And the body in the, among the Greeks, was, was a, it was at the very least only utilitarian. So I can treat it any way I want. But ultimately for the Greeks and the Romans, you want to shed this body and go away. That is not Judeo-Christian. That's Greco-Roman. Now again you'll say, but I hear it all the time in the church. They're spouting Greco-Roman context and pulling verses out of context to make it say that. What is the basic philosophy? Let us eat, let us drink, and let us be merry, for tomorrow we die. So we got to get our, we got to get it now. We got to get our reputation. We got to get our fame. And I, it's dog eat dog, and I'm I'm the big dog. That is Greco-Roman. And since this is all we have, we might as well enjoy it. So the Greeks were big on theater and music and art and entertainment and sports. They, were, they did the gymnasiums, they did the, the amphitheaters, they did the Olympics, they did all of that stuff. That whole thing is Greco-Roman. Now, you're saying, well, you just described America. I didn't describe all of America, but I described a big part of America. We are the children of the Greco-Roman cultural foundation. It is the basis of our culture. Now I want to describe to you the other door. If that was the Greco-Roman door over here on the left, on the right was the Judeo-Christian door. Very different door. It is the door through which Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the tribes of Israel, and the Jewish people uh, came. It's got a very different group of people its languages are Hebrew and Greek instead of Greek and Latin. But the Greek is not classical Greek. It is Greek as a second language. In other words, it is using Greek but maintaining your Hebraic worldview. 
if you take the Greek New Testament and you try to connect it to Homer and to the philosophers, which is what the early church fathers did, you will misunderstand it because you will change its context. You have to use the Greek in the context of how it was used in the Septuagint and the, the, the Judeo-Christian world that used, tried to use Hebrew concepts using Greek words. So, the culture text of Judaism was the Torah, the prophets, the gospels, and the epistles. Not the Homerian uh, epics and not the philosophers. They used uh, a geography that came out of Egypt. You remember when Charlton Heston brought them out of Egypt. So they came out of Egypt and then uh, into the promised land among the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Parasites and the Hittites and Tutites and all the types, uh, all those groups, right? That's their context. And they were seen as different and odd. The Greeks said, how can there be any agreement between Athens and Jerusalem. And the Romans might as well have said, how can there be any agreement between Rome and Jerusalem? Jerusalem is this oddball, strange thing. And both the Greeks and the Romans ultimately quit trying to change the Jews and just built a fence around them and said, if you, if you just stay quiet, we'll leave you alone. And when they weren't quiet, they were... They were uh, Attacked, and that's what happened in AD 70. So, that's the group. Now, out of that door comes that group. What did they think? Well, instead of thinking of health and beauty, the Judeo-Christians thought in terms of holiness and righteousness. Holiness is to be set apart for God's purpose. That's the idea of being chosen people or a called people. We have something to do that's not our doing. It's His doing. And we are called to be that. And therefore, we are distinct. We are holy. Not better. Different. Okay? And we are to do right. Because God demands that we do the right thing. So, holiness and righteousness rather than health and beauty. Now, you see this uh, distinction in our schools. Our schools don't care if the teenagers are holy and righteous with regard to sexuality. They care that they look good and that they're healthy. So they don't want them pregnant or have STDs, so they teach them how to put a condom on a banana. It's not about holiness and righteousness. It's about health and beauty. You can see that distinction within our culture. It was a major distinction in the early days. It's becoming less of a distinction today. Secondly, the Jews thought of good as a moral concept, not as a skill base. Being good wasn't you were a good plumber. Okay, If I said to you, my son or my daughter are good people, you would understand it in the Judeo-Christian sense of the word. You would think, well, they, they do the right thing. They're moral. They're, they're faithful. They're trustworthy. Right? If I said, my son and my daughter are good musicians, you don't know anything about their character. All you know is about that skill, right? That's that difference between Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian. Third one. The Jews understood God not through circumstances, but through the scriptures. 
They didn't look at the circumstances and say, what is God telling us and how shall I interpret his word? They would look at the scriptures to say, what do we do with this circumstance? Okay? Very different mindset. Very different worldview that is almost lost in the Christian church. We now take our experiences and we do what I call pooling our ignorance. We read a verse and we say, what does that verse mean to you? And you say, well, I had this experience and so it means this. And this one, I had this experience, it means this. I had this experience, it means this. Who cares what you think the verse means? I want to know what God thinks the verse means. I want to have God's perspective on it, not man's perspective. And most Bible studies are not trying to find out what God thinks, but trying to democratically decide what the majority thinks the text says. That is Greco-Roman, not Judeo-Christian. Judeo-Christian says, Thus saith the Lord, we must understand what he says, that we may obey him. It's called the fear of the Lord. Now, What's the goal? The goal in the Greco-Roman is to be famous and to be successful. The goal in the Judeo-Christian perspective is to bring glory to God. And that may mean no fame and no success. So we have the line of Enoch in the line of Cain. He has a city built around him. He's famous and has a great reputation. Enoch in the line of Seth was not for God took him. Why? Because he walked with God. He was no person of reputation, but he was big with God. It's a difference. The individual is important in Greco-Roman. The community is important in Judeo-Christianity. To be in community, and you know this if you've been in a family or if you've been in a congregation, you can't just be your own individual self. You kind of got to go along with the crowd. And that really irritates a Greco-Roman. Greco-Roman, if you say, this is the way we're going, they say, why? I don't want to go that way. Right? But the Judeo-Christian one says, we will follow the Lord. And the Lord has sent us in this direction. And therefore, we must entrust ourselves to each other. We must walk in humility. We must follow the will of God. And in the will of God, marriage is normative. It's not an option, it's what you do. You, you become fruitful and multiply. You marry and go on. The scriptures over and over say that. The Greco-Roman world says, ah, oh, it's an option and you might not even want to do that. The focus is not on the life here and now. The focus is on the kingdom to come. You repair the world now. Tikkun olam. You repair the world while we wait for the Messiah to bring the kingdom. In the Greco-Roman world, the body is not important. In the Judeo-Christian world, the body is very important. Because the body was part of the creation of us as a soul. And the body will be redeemed. And the body will be resurrected. And the body will be changed. And you will be in a body for all eternity. The body is very important. It's why we bury our dead in anticipation of the resurrection. We don't throw them away. We don't burn them into the next world. We bury in anticipation of the resurrection. And that's getting messed up all over the place. The Jews don't seek wisdom. They seek a sign. They look in the circumstances if there's a sign that something God told us about is now happening. This will be a sign to you. You shall find the child wrapped 
in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Everything that I've told you now, you'll know which one it is when you see the sign. Jews, Paul says, seek a sign. Greeks seek wisdom. Now the Greco-Roman world, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The Judeo-Christian world in Ecclesiastes says this. When you're a young man, youth, that means about 12 to 30, explore. Follow your heart's desire. But remember that God will bring you into account for these things. In other words, the Greco-Roman is, if it feels good, do it. And the Judeo-Christian is, consider these options, but remember the commandments and the judgment of God in the way you live your life. And while the Greco-Roman world is the ultimate thing, is the life of leisure with entertainment and sports, in the Judeo-Christian world, six days thou shalt do thy labor, and on the seventh day thou shalt rest, because here you will eat your bread by the sweat of your brow, but you will have one day to anticipate the kingdom of come to come when you will lay down your burdens, and you will be at rest with God, and you will be among him. Now, if you think about that, those are very different worldviews. And if we were the early church, you know, the 8 o'clock service, we would, uh, we would see that clearly. Because the world would be going this way, and we would be going this way, and we'd know it would take an entire turnaround to do it. Okay? But you don't have that. Today, people go to church because it's entertaining. They join churches because they have activities and sports and stuff like that. So we have merged these things together so that we can't tell the difference. And I'll talk about that next time, how that got merged. But it's important that you understand it. They had an easy way of knowing what was the, the direction that God wanted them to go versus the way the world was wanting them to go. We always say we are to be in the world but not of it. The truth is, we're of it, but not in it. We create whatever the world has. We create a Christian version of it. And then we stay away from the worldly one, thinking that we're being holy. And we're not doing that. So, I placed a chart on the back. I told you that. And if you'll look at that, you'll see that in the early days, the Greco-Roman and the Judeo-Christian were very different. And what happened, and I'm, I don't have time to talk about it today because I have to talk about some other stuff quickly, is it wasn't that the Greco-Roman and the Judeo-Christian came together equally. Okay? It's that the Judeo-Christian was brought into the Greco-Roman and then, as a catalyst, altered the Greco-Roman. This is why in post-Christian America, they are shoving the Judeo-Christian back out so that it can be pure Greco-Roman again. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand what's happened in the last 40 years. The last 40 years, Judaism and Christianity has been pushed to the margins to keep us compartmentalized, keep us separate, so the Greco-Roman uh, revival can take place without our interference. So this culture isn't founded on Judeo-Christian values. It was founded on Greco-Roman. It was then dressed in Judeo-Christian garb and those are being taken off. And that's what's happening to our culture. So we'll talk more about that 
uh, later. But now I've got to get to some scriptures where you'll say, this wasn't a sermon, this was a lesson. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and you've all got this memorized, Paul says that we are to present ourselves, he uses that that word of a sacrifice, a burnt offering, present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And we are to follow God's will. We're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now that renewing of our mind is done by the scriptures. It's not done by hanging out with Christians unless they are full of the scriptures. And Christians are full of stuff, but mostly it's not scripture. Okay? So the reality is, we have to get the word in us. Um, one, one musician wrote a song, can't remember the whole song, but he says, I've heard you're into the word. But my question is, is the word into you? That's, that's different. You can be into the word. Boy, I really like the word. But if the word's not in you and not transforming you, uh, it, it doesn't mean anything. And that's why we have to be doers of the word. So Paul says that we are to, because we've been bought with a price, we are to obey God, which means we have to transform our mind and walk in his ways. Now I want to give you two extended passages that describe this process. Uh, They're both in the book of Ephesians. So if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to uh, read chapter 2 real quickly, make some comments, and then we're going to move to chapter 4 and just look at the last half. I could read the entire book, but I want to give you the context that what I'm saying is not something I just picked up, but it is foundational to understanding these biblical texts. So, Paul says in chapter 2 of Romans, um, of uh, Ephesians, And you, he means you Gentiles, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Who is in charge of the Gentile nations? God or Satan? Satan, right? He told Jesus, all these countries belong to me. I can give them to whoever I want. Uh, worship me and I'll give them to you. It won't be until the kingdom comes that the, the nations of this world will now become the nations of our God and His Christ. Right? So it's important to keep that in mind. And that includes America. Then he says, among them, among these sons of disobedience, this cultural Gentile world, we too, he means we Jews, uh, lived, formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as we. Paul says our mindset was just like everybody else. We were about ourselves, we were about our own way, and we followed whatever we felt like doing, whatever we thought, we just did it. And we were children of disobedience, because we weren't doing what God said to do, we were doing what the world said to do. He says, but God, who was rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together, that is, Jew and Gentile, in Messiah, because by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, seating us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the age to come, in the kingdom that will come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
in those famous verses. By grace you have been saved through faith, as not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. That's where most people stop. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So he says, remember then, that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's You used to be Greco-Romans. You used to be part of the Babel crowd. You were cut off from that other group who had the promises, had the covenants, had the, the land, had all of that. You were cut off from that. But now, in Messiah Yeshua, Christ Jesus, you formerly, who were afar off, have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. And He has become our peace between us and Israel who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Be careful on this verse. See the italics? If you use an NASB. See the italics that says, which is the law of commandments? There's no word there for that, and it shouldn't say that. It should say, abolishing in his flesh the enmity in the law of commandments. The law of commandments is not the enmity. The enmities in our flesh that can't obey those commandments. Otherwise, we make the law wrong here, and the law is not wrong. We're wrong. When there's a battle between you and the commandment of God, the commandment's not the problem. Okay? Thank God the NASB puts that in italics so you know it's not part of the text. A lot of Bibles don't do that. Contained in the ordinance so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Now, I don't want to talk about the new man now, but let me just tell you, it is not what people are telling you. It's not a man who's neither Jew or Gentile. It's a man who's both. Marriage is not the man becoming the woman and the woman becoming the man, right? The two become one. The question is, which one? It's a combination of the two of them. Okay? So this nonsense that Gentiles stop being Gentiles and become Jews when they accept Jesus, or that Jews stop being Jews and become Gentiles when they accept Jesus, is just that. It's nonsense. That he might reconcile them both in one body, it's about the body, to God through the Christ, having put to death the enmity. The enmity that was between Jew and Gentile because of the commandments. And he came and preached... Peace to you who were afar off, that is the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the holy ones and of God's household. And we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom this whole temple is being fit together so that it is holy in the Lord and we then are dwelt by the Spirit of God. That's quite a context. So he's telling us the big picture. This is what the worldview is about. What about the mindset? What about the individual part? Well, the mindset is found in chapter 4, verse 17. He's now talking about us, in some sense, what we have to do individually. So he says in verse 17 of chapter 4, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, 
that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. You've got to stop this Greco-Roman stuff, folks. Because they are darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. That's what you used to be. You're not supposed to be that anymore. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. Impurity leads to unholiness and greedy leads to unrighteousness. Just the opposite of the commandments. But you didn't learn Christ this way, if indeed you've heard him and you have been taught him. So in reference, verse 22, this is very important. In reference to your former manner of life, you are to lay aside the old self, which is corrupted according to the lusts of deceit. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self in the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, which is the scriptures, the commandments of holiness and righteousness. Now, let me give you an example of how this works. Because i got to do this. I've, I've been using this example for years, and I want you to see, and it's perfect because we're set up like the tabernacle here. What the priests would do, they would present the body as a dead sacrifice. Paul said, we're to present as a living sacrifice. So we come to the altar and we die to self. And then we become alive to God to walk in new ways, right? Now, what they would do, remember, this is that external courtyard. The courtyard had the altar and the laver, and then the holy place had the tables and the menorah, and then the holy of holies had the ark, right? So we're, and we're set exactly the way it was. So here's what the priest would do. He would come in. He would do that sacrifice. He'd end up with blood and ashes and all kinds of stuff on him for that. And what he would do is he would take off his outer garment and put it away. And then... He would go to the labor and he would wash that away from him. And then he would put on his priestly garments so that he could go into the holy place to serve God. That's what Paul's talking about. He wants you to do the same thing. He wants you, because you have died and been risen with Christ, he wants you each day to take off the things of the world that have gotten on you. Change your mind by the renewing of your mind through the word. And then put on the things of God that you're supposed to have on in terms of your behavior. That's what he's saying here. So how do we do that? We do that by asking ourselves, what am I thinking, feeling, desiring, and doing that is the world telling me to do it? My culture and my society is saying, this is how you will live that isn't consistent with the scriptures. And I'm to take that off when I identify one. Then I'm to bathe my mind in the word of God as to what God says about that. And then I am to put on that behavior and thought and feeling and walk in God's ways. Now, let me tell you, having done this for a long time, I wake up almost every day with the same garbage on my face and have to wash it, right? Right? I have to take those same things. How do they get on me? You know, while you're sleeping, those clothes get back on, you know, and then I have to take them off again. And it takes a while to build the habit of obeying God. And that's why you have to internalize God's word. That's really important. Uh, So how do we do this? We do this by obeying God. And I 
I don't have time to go into all of that, but let me do it real quickly. You say, well, where do I start? You start with the three big commandments. This is important to teach your children. Don't start with teaching them the Ten Commandments. There are three commandments that you teach your children, and you have to teach yourself first. Okay? Three commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your soul, all your life, and all your strength. In other words, that's, that's the burnt offering up there. You give yourself a living sacrifice. Love is giving. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How do you say the love of God dwells in you if you see a brother or sister naked and destitute of daily food and you do not give to them? You want a good English word for agapeo? It's I give to you at my expense. Give up for another. Okay? So this is you will give up to God everything. That's the starting foundation. I am bought with a price. I am not my own. Second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Boy, I'm glad it's that one. And not you shall love your neighbor with all your mind, all your soul, all your life, and all your strength. Because my neighbor's in trouble, right? So he says, how do you love your neighbor? As yourself. What do you do when you're hungry? You eat. What do you do when you're thirsty? You drink. What do you do when you fall down? Pick yourself up. Do that to your neighbor. You can even do that to your enemy. If your enemy thirsts, give him to drink. If he's hungry, feed him. That's all it is. That's what the commandments are. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's radical. And then we have a third commandment. It was given tonight that the Lord died. A new commandment I give you. That you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Uh-oh. Love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? He laid down his life. Oh, that's what John meant when he said, the Lord laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. The commandment to love God is a commandment to holiness. The commandment to love our neighbor as ourself is a commandment of righteousness. And the commandment to love one another is a commandment to unity. Which we are not doing. Because we're Protestant Americans. And I don't trust anybody but myself. And I'm not sure I trust me. Right? I mean, that kind of mindset is killing us. So that's the starting place. I must learn step by step to give myself to God. I must learn step by step to treat another as I want to be treated and as I treat myself. And I must be clear that the proof of my discipleship of following Jesus is that I treat his people the way he does. Not the way they do. Thank God it doesn't say love one another as they love each other. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, I have plenty of scripture for that, but I'm, I'm out of time. So I want you to understand what, this, what I'm doing today. The Greco-Roman world and the Judeo-Christian world are not the same. And it was very clear to Paul and to the apostles and to the rest of Israel when this faith began. But in the 4th and 5th centuries, these things were merged... And 
the Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian world collided and merged in such a way that it was hard to tell one from the other. And that is what my next message is going to be. How that got mixed, why it got mixed, what was allowed to be mixed and what shouldn't have been mixed, and why we ended up separating both Judaism and Christianity. And we separated the Hebraic biblical worldview from the New Testament perspective. So, let's pray.